Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening and welcome to the program. Tonight, for your quintessential poetry listening pleasure, poet Benjamin Goldberg is here. Benjamin's poetry is growing in acclaim, and he has been featured in a number of well-known journals. Welcome, Benjamin, to the program. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Great. I'm glad you're here. Are you ready to begin this poetic journey? I can't wait. All right. <laughs> what is poetry, Benjamin? Talk to me. Um, I have been writing it off and on in some capacity since probably about third grade. And I'm still not entirely sure how to answer that in a meaningful way. <laughs> um, to me, it's, uh, it's really the only, it's really the only form of communication that I've found that actually captures the way that I think and the way that I understand the world. And, um, and I just, I remember kind of, being in situations where things wouldn't make sense to me um, and then poem that would come uh, in those situations and the poem would kind of unlock something that I wasn't understanding. So it's really a way of understanding the world and understanding how I function within it. All right. I like that. A way of understanding the world and how you function in the world. Hmm. Tell me more about poetry. What, what else is to you? Anything else? Um, I think one of the difficulties I have with this question in particular, which is what makes it, I think, such a good question, is um, mm-hmm. it is, I think it's so many things, and it is in so many different contexts, so many different people. It can be anything, really. Um, yes. For instance, I teach high school, and this is mm-hmm. something that we talk about with my students a lot. Um, you know, we, we ask that same question, and and the, the conversation usually focuses around kind of, you know, is it an implementation of poetic elements? Is it kind of something true coming from a person to another person? Is it, um, is it all of these things? And one thing that I tell them, and this is, I mean, this is the honest truth, is there isn't a single day in the hallway that I don't hear somebody say something that is, I mean, belongs in a collection of poetry or belongs in a magazine or belongs in an anthology. So I think it is maybe, again, one of the most authentic ways of communication um, and kind of true to the, how we think and how we naturally speak. Uh, you know, wow. there's this, um, this misnomer, I guess you could call it that uh, poetry is, uh, has to be abstract. It has to be obscure. It has to be inaccessible. And I don't necessarily find that to be the case. I think this is something that is just, it's in us. Wow. Very nice. You know, it's been a long time since I've been in high school. I mean, a really long time. Do kids care about poetry? Do they care about it? Uh, The answer varies. Uh, It depends on how it's taught. And, you know, and I'll share some uh, some culpability here. It's not always always taught the greatest. Um, 
Okay. I will say uh, I've heard poems. Um, I've heard I've heard poems silence rooms, kind of the way that we're mm. reading. I've heard poems that speak to virtually every person in that room in some sense. I've heard people. Uh, I've heard students without any sort of quote unquote literary training uh, kind of talk about poetry with the same reverence that anyone in the poetry world would. So um, can care about it um, when it's shown to be. You know, when it's shown to be something that 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 can make have meaning for their lives. Wow, I mean, I'm already learning so much. This is only the first couple of seconds of the program to hear from a teacher's perspective. And when you made the statement that kids in the hall make statements that are potentially poetry, and I'm sure they are in many different ways. That's very powerful, extremely powerful. So. Why is it important? Why is it important? Why is it important that we do what we do? I just want to know. I think, you know, I think the answer to that, again, it varies so much from poet to poet. And mm-hmm. I, I think there are some poets that talk about poetry in the sense that it can, I don't know, um, communicate a truth. Uh, some poets from the standpoint of uh uh, affecting a change or kind of uh, bringing visibility to uh, an experience. I think it can instruct, it can entertain, it can delight, it can distract, it can do all of these things. It can be a form of activism. I know that that is not um, really a notion that's in fashion right now, uh, but I believe that it can be just like any other form. Um, I think for for me, it it is a form of survival. Um and I'm sure that that's something we'll talk about. Um, I don't know kind of what brings you to poetry, but I think a lot of poets, myself included, it is uh, it's a way of being here and staying here. Yes. Survival brought me here. Yeah. I can't lie and make it some grandiose statement about it. It was survival. Yeah. Survival of the fittest. And for me, poetry was my way to stay alive. Now, as you think, think about your work, my friend, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Um, I'm sorry. I think a lot of people also they um, they that statement they don't they think it's hyperbole, right? Or mm-hmm. it can sound like hyperbole, but it's not. Like this is this is how so many of us stay here. That's all I wanted to add to that. All right. I already like talking with you. This is nice. All right. Thank as you. As you think Likewise. about your body of work, <laughs> as you think about your body of work. What are some of the predominant themes? Um, one of the subjects I explore um, in the most depth is kind of lived experience with mental health, uh, mental illness specifically. Uh, I, I, I'm diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Uh, I have other diagnoses, but that is the diagnosis I would say is kind of most accurate. Um, and kind of most consistent with my lived experience. So that, not that, you know, I'm out here writing poems that talk about that specifically or that name that specifically, although there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's important. Um, it's, it's really the lived experience. Um, the poet Terrence Hayes, who has been for years one of my favorite poets, he, um, I kind of came to this idea through him, really, the idea that instead of writing uh, politics, you write through the personal. And um, since politics is a dimension of the personal, uh, it will come through. So 
uh, writing about mental illness, specifically borderline, through that lens um, of lived experience is something that I really try to do as, as authentically as I can. Well, you know, as someone who lives also with mental illness, poetry is just, I don't know how to put it in words. And as you say, it means different things to different people. But when you're dealing with depression, anxiety, PTSD, borderline, whatever, having an outlet is extremely important. Please share a poem. Absolutely. Uh, sure. Um, actually, this poem kind of focuses on what we were just talking about. Um, this is called Fugue with Allegory and Intake Room, and this is um, from a collection that I've been working on for a long time now. And uh, um, fugues are kind of one of the recurring uh, poem sequences. So this one is Fugue with Allegory and Intake Room. A nurse skims plasma from your day-old wolf tattoo. Another sweeps the muzzle with latex fingers jotting down undocumented scar tissue. You won't find a safer place to sleep. Behind the sonic parking lot last week, your beater's backseat felt reupholstered with tater tots and razors, transfigured by your dough stream. When you stumbled down the gulch beyond the dumpsters, you spent hours there pretending snow was gauze. Tonight, each room has a name. Day, quiet, authorized persons only. Tonight, a boy beside you sweeps so wildly, his sigh grows burning hooves and gallops through cinder block into the blizzard. In the morning, a man your memory will call the clipboard explains. Your sickness is a statue. Your sickness is two brothers draped in stone and mounted above two iron gates. The left reclined, the right in chains. You spend hours flipping swords and flowers into piles, reading bubbles scribbled onto face cards. You contribute to the conversation. Clothed in skin, you play lightning without laces. He hands you paper cups and your blood greets angels by their chemical names. From here, the view constricts. A quarter acre of clover field, high beams on the muted interstate. Your ritual before a dosage wins. List the lunatics you count as kin. Imagine what they'd weave from what your eyes are given. Flowers filling links of diamond wire, a full night's sleep from floodlight. There aren't gardens. You fail at sleep. Between your window and its mesh, an emerald beetle will time-lapse in dust. Your task, the glassless mirrors don't believe you. Before you leave, they must. Thank you. Benjamin, what is the purpose of that poll? Um, this, yeah, I think is one of, you know, one of the, one of the quotes that's been stuck in my head. And I, I got, I got this quote from the poet, um, Tiana Clark, who is another poet I love a lot, um, whose work I love a lot. And I, she quoted it from somebody and I, I can't attribute the quote properly, except to say I got it through her. Um, essentially, aren't we writing the same damn poem over and over? And and kind of with that idea, this is one of my many attempts, one of my many damn poems to, um, mm-hmm. to try to consolidate this period in my life that, that I'm still, you know, this notion that we, we just get over things or we grow out of them. Um, I don't know how much of that is actual messaging we get, how much of that is what I project on what I hear, but um, 
this notion that, that we leave these moments uh, and these moments leave us is, is kind of, it's, it's alien to me. And this is one of my attempts to, I'd say this was about a four-year period that I was on enough medication that basically kept me asleep for 12 to 18 <laughs> hours a day. I understand. Um, yeah. And that's, if you don't have that experience, that's, that's so, it's so hard to communicate that to people. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. So when you think about writing a piece of poetry, how does it begin with you or for you? With an idea, a form, or an image? And maybe you've already answered that, but I just want to go in detail. How does it begin for you? Huh. That's a really good question. Um, I would say it can begin with any of those things. Um, I would say for me, what brought me to poetry first was sound. And, uh, you know, there was a, um, a poem I heard read aloud that, I mean, it was the first poem that I heard read aloud that just kind of captivated me. And it was a sound poem. It was a slam poem, as a matter of fact. And um, I just, I, I, it was more than just falling in love. It was, um, that was what I wanted to be filled with, that sound. That's what I felt like I was filled with. Is like, that was the first poem that made me, I don't know, I felt like the way that I thought was, was echoed in that. And, and the way I wanted to think was echoed in that. So with me, again, I'm getting, kind of getting away from your question, but it's, it's a sound, um, it's a cadence, it's uh, an image. Very seldom is it a thing that I want to say um, or a subject that I want to explore, although sometimes it's kind of like an exercise. I'll push myself to talk about something that I, I don't typically feel comfortable talking about. Um, some poems start as conversations that I have with myself out loud. Um, I'm working on a poem right now that uh, I'm really, I'm really kind of into it. And um, it began back, man, it came uh, back in um, 2021 when we were was talking about coming out of quarantine and I was uh, kind of pacing around the pond and having this conversation out loud um, and some, yeah, some conversation or some poems begin as conversations that I have out loud um, mm -hmm. with myself. Right. Now, do you have that particular piece with you? I do. It's, uh, it's not in necessarily a readable state, but I've got a few lines of it. <laughs> it's, uh, I'd love to hear them. Really? Sure. Okay. I would actually love to share them. Um, this is called, sorry, let me pull up my, so actually this one comes with a little bit of an explanation, um, if that's okay. Yes. So um, kind of what we were talking about earlier a few seconds ago, like it is really hard to explain certain aspects of living with mental illness and, and a lot of people don't really like to hear it it feels like yes. um mm -hmm. and which is i don't want to say it's fine but it is kind of what it is but i would i would be okay or i would find a way not talking about it although i don't think that's the healthiest thing um but mm -hmm. people have ways of probing and overstepping and overreaching 
and kind of transgressing against those boundaries. So, you know, it's, I, I remember, I'm trying to think of a good example of this and I'm struggling, but one that's coming to mind is kind of one recurring thing that I've experienced is um, people commenting on my affect or, you know, the fact that I'm not outgoing or that I'm kind of silent in certain circumstances. And like, there are so many, so many stories behind that. And, and I just wish that I could be in a space without that being challenged or without that being, you know what I mean? So yeah, yes, it's I do. called, um, yeah, it's, it's rough sometimes. Um, yes, it it's called a flow chart for the next time someone asks about my doll affect. <laughs> and this began as a, just a rant as I'm circling this pond, just like, you know, somebody had done it and I was just fuming. And of course in the moment I said nothing and I just blinked at them, but, um, and, and here are the lines. Person A meets person B, present day. Adjudicators bind the friar's hands, ignite the thatch, stand back. Hatchling blackbirds flutter from the pyre, 100 AD. Briefly listed the protagonists of clinically sanctioned sentience, serotonin, dopamine. Person A and person B meet inside a classroom, lobby, office, chapel, diner, park, or party. Um, and then we got some more down here. Perhaps it's Lorca's mm -hmm. Thousand Window Dance Hall where persons A, persons B, first kiss, hear violins, whisper prayers at gravestones, mortars, wrap, and ribbons, kneel or nap beside the banks of wild hyacinths. You know, you fell. What yours was, theirs is. Expositions grow shameless. Beauty is forgiven. And I've got pages and pages of notes beyond that that aren't in any coherent <laughs> order. But, um, yeah, that's kind of where I am with this part. So when you were able to put that on paper or type it or whatever, what did that do for you? Wow. Thank you for asking that because you just – just asking that, you made me realize that it was catharsis. And it was, um, I mean, it was more than catharsis. It was, it was catharsis. It was, I think some of my earliest poems were attempts to mimic what I thought poets were supposed to do. And that's not an uncommon story, but this was one of the first poems that I felt myself saying something that I really just truly needed to say to be in the world the way that I needed to. And, um, and now kind of, thinking about that, answering your question, I'm kind of feeling that again. All right. Please share another piece with us. Sure. Uh, okay. This one is called Episode. And um, this, uh, a little explanation on this one. This is my attempt to write about a, a psychotic episode I experienced back in 2005. Um, kind of an old one but well the poem is not old but the episode is thankfully so episode dear dopamine the summer you left poems were at their greatest risk of hillsides leeward slopes and wasp loud gullies long stem stargazers tilting skyward what's left to confess 
I sat on hills and stared at flowers. I scoured stacks of files for the lineage of your departure, lit a barrel for my bloodline, burned the day rooms where my uncle heard his silver tooth emitting music, the nurse who scribbled sleep veined below each dose of Thorazine, every angel here wandering the tender lines of fugues. You know what's carved across the tree I come from. You know because you carved it. I suspect you are the one who pulls a stunt like Moria, the burning ram. Were you afraid your chosen listened only to your absence, your mother tongue of thunderheads unspooling into wings? I'm as unfit to slaughter a son as I am the father of faith. Still, I've ended days with kitchen knives twined to curtain rods, hacksaws dangling from a skylight. When you filled my mother's house with copperheads, they wore my mother's face. They played nocturnes at her piano. They chopped her wild sage. Now, let me tell a story you know, because you are its origin. Once, there was a hill. My legs bloomed into lotuses. How tired are you of hearing crickets? Right. Once I had no skin. I wore a scrim of wings and stridulating limbs. All of this made noises. I, too, grew sick of them. Thank you. Wow. Benjamin, do you come from a literary background? In part two of the question is, what did you learn growing up about writing? Hmm. Oh, wow. Um, the answer to that first part is no, not a particularly literary background. Although, you know, my mother's, she's a voracious reader and there are always books in the house. And they say that that is kind of one of the, the precursors of the, you know, formation of literacy in children. Um, although I actually, to be honest with you, I struggled a lot as a reader, uh, as a child, um, without going into too much detail, some things happened during childhood, um, which led to some, uh, adjustment issues going on. Uh, school is hard and, um, and reading, especially during early childhood was, was very hard. Uh, I wouldn't say I really kind of, kind of caught on as a reader until, um, maybe for me it was late actually. Uh, I, I did read in middle school and high school, but I didn't really start reading until probably college, not voraciously. And then, um, you know, to the other question, I'm sorry, what was part two? What did you learn growing up about writing? Gotcha. Um, actually the answer to that question, um, relates to the first one. Um, the first document I ever wrote was a letter to somebody that, um, that harmed me. And I was, I think five years old at the time. And it was my uh, grandmother actually, who was a, um, was a, a, a counselor and had helped students in similar situations. And, um, and she encouraged me to, um, to put my voice onto the page essentially. And I didn't really know it at the time, but in a sense, I was kind of writing what would be the seed of many of the poems that I'd return to later over the next few decades, um, which is kind of a trip now that I'm thinking about it. But, uh, but yeah, I learned that writing was a way to, um, to say things to people, to yourself. Um, and 
I don't know that these lessons were ever kind of explicit and they're just kind of things mm-hmm. that I've, I've thought about and reflected on later. Um, but I think those were my earliest experiences with writing, trying to give voice to this, to this thing that made no sense to me. And, uh, wow. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You've answered <laughs> most of the questions that I usually ask and we were only 24 minutes in. So <laughs> if something sounds repetitive, <laughs> bear with me, please, please bear with me. No, because I, I would, my, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, Dr. Engel. What were you saying? My fault. No, no, no. The question that I usually ask is what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Hmm. Now, the letter that you wrote, it sounds as if it was not a poem, I don't believe. Am I correct? It was just more of a letter. Right. Yep, that's absolutely true. So in terms of poetry, I mean, how did you segue into poetry then? When did you learn that it had power? I think I discovered the power of poetry. And it's funny because in fourth grade, I took a class called Poetry Power, and I wrote this this corny little... um, corny little uh, sinkwain, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, no, I think I was probably in 10th grade. And I had this, it was a philosophy teacher. And, you know, a lot of poets have this kind of their origin story. Uh, you know, a high school teacher of some kind kind of opens their eyes to the, the you know, power of poetry. Um, so I'm no exception in that, in that regard. I, uh, yeah, it was 10th grade. It was philosophy, and he got bored partway through the year of teaching philosophy. So he just made it into a poetry class, which, as a teacher, that's, you know, by many people's standards, that, that's quest- questionable pedagogy, but I have a soft spot in my heart still to this day for teachers that did stuff like that and um, whatever it looks like on paper. And what he did is he read a, a slam poem called The Eulogy of Jimmy Christ by uh, Reggie Gibson, and, uh, and I don't know why I keep making that distinction slam poem. I shouldn't, um, cause this was, this, this poem just blew my mind away. It, I, I know there's kind of this, this move against by many people using the kind of mystical or like magical lexicon to describe their engagement with poetry, but I can't avoid it. I really can't like, Sorry. This was a mystical experience. Part of it was just the sounds. It was a form of music I didn't know that you could make by throwing words together. Part of it, I, I, I had to have had some kind of a synesthetic experience. Like what I saw was psychedelic. Um, I saw things like I, so it was so vivid. Um, oh, what else? Um, him up there reading the poem, he was so in love with the words himself and I think I was 16 at the time. Um, and that was the first time that I realized that you could love, love something like that. I mean, I love my parents and there were people in my life that I love, but like love, I don't know, an idea or a discipline or something like that. And I didn't know how much I needed it until that moment when it was appearing before me. And I've tried to move uh, closer and closer to that Um some years have been better than others when it comes to that, but um, that's been the journey, I guess. I 
I, I'm just so touched by what you're sharing because to me, you epitomize what I like this program to be about. People sharing their stories, feeling comfortable doing so, talking about how poetry somehow assisted them in whatever way, shape, or form, navigate through life, the good, bad, and indifferent of life. So, again, I'm enjoying what I'm hearing so much, and I just want to thank you again for being my guest. I just want to say thank that. Thank you for – thank you. Thank you. That's very kind, and thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting me, and thank you for asking such thoughtful questions. And I wanted to say about the repetition, as somebody yes. – like, somebody, not that you've repeated, but as somebody – I'm getting a little giddy right now because I am a repeater. <laughs> I hear myself saying <laughs> all the time, and I'm like, oh, just did it again, but whatever. It's a thing. But thank you. Seriously. Well, let me ask this question before we take a quick break. All sure. great writers, and you've mentioned a few, have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Mm. Uh, I think I, I I'm one of these poets that a lot of the a lot of the people I look to are contemporary, and they are my contemporaries. Right. And some of them are even kind of like in my age group, which the distinction shouldn't matter, but you know, conditioning. Um, so, you know, Karen Taves is a poet I mentioned first, and I think he has probably had one of the most formative impacts on my love of poetry, my understanding of what poetry on the page can do. And also out loud, because he's an amazing, I mean, he's an amazing poet in every regard. But, um, but the way that he reads his poetry, I think, is, 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 is phenomenal, um, uh, otherworldly in a sense. Uh, so him, I think, is one of my earliest formative influences, Charles Simich. Um, kind of, I feel like I honed or tried to use kind of his poems to hone my imagistic focus. So... I was answering earlier, sound is kind of one of my ways in the poem. Poems, uh, image is kind of one of my others. Um, so yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my imagery, I think, comes from having him rattling around in my head. Uh, oh man, so many more. Um, Diane Seuss' poem, or is a poet whose poems I am currently in love with. Uh, her most recent collection, Frank Sonnets. Uh, I'm on I don't know how many rereads of that. Um I think her voice, uh her kind of her approach to autobiography that explores the self but without centering the self is I, I am I'm in awe of that. I I still don't know how to do that and I would I would love to I would love to learn. <laughs> um there's uh, man Diane Seuss, D.A. Powell. Um, uh, I mentioned Tiana Clark earlier. Um, I love the permissions that she gives herself in her poems, that she takes and creates um, permissions to to break conventions apart, permissions to uh, be as bold or as vulnerable as she needs to be in her poems, uh, to be kind or to be rigorous um, with herself, with with others um kind of this constant push toward um a more enriched and joyous existence uh i'm not a joy poet and i don't know that even with several lifetimes i will (laughs) i will be 
Um, but I really admire poets that, that can do that. Um, and I don't want to say that she's a joy poet that, that that's reductive, but it's definitely something that I see her trying to do in her poems is push toward that. And it's, it, it, it I keep saying I'm in awe of it. I got to find a better <laughs> thing, but it's, um, it's really, it's, 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 it's something I aspire to do myself because I can't. All right. Well, let's take a brief break, Benjamin, and we'll be right back. Awesome. back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I am here with Benjamin Goldberg, a name that you will remember. A poet on the rise. That's how I view you, Benjamin. Say that one more time, please. I said, <laughs> I said you are a poet on the rise. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A name to remember. Really there I put your name up in lights and you were not even around to hear. <laughs> I had spotlighted your name and you were somewhere with a latte. You know? <laughs> All right. Benjamin. <laughs> Some poets claim (laughs) that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? So I think my instinct with most questions about process and craft is to is to do this kind of reflexive, like, oh, there's so many different approaches. And almost, I mean, that almost goes without saying, but I think this is something that I will kind of take a firm stance on. I, uh, I'm a, I'm a rigorous editor uh, and reviser. um, And that is kind of over the past, I'd say eight years, just almost become a hindrance. Um, But, but I think like, Actually, my answer to that does kind of it relates to the borderline uh, diagnosis, and I guess my experience with the with the condition. Um, so, if you'll permit me, kind of a weird, uh, loopy kind of answer. Um, one of the one of the kind of core features of borderline is an unstable sense of self, and mm-hmm. um, and what that can look like in in my life is. Uh, just kind of tumultuous moods, uh, but also kind of kind of sudden and sometimes even seismic seeming shifts in like direction or trajectory, um, kind of like, you know, dropping out of school or going back to school or uh, changing a career or something like that. Um, just 
So when it comes to the editorial process, um, and I've heard people say this, kind of seeing multiple people who've seen my work, uh, you know, workshops and things like that, you know, a poem will look a certain way in one draft and it will be, I mean, not just in a different form or kind of the language is honed, but like it will be an entirely different poem um, in, in a subsequent draft. And then kind of, I might decide to, to kind of take it back. So, and again, I know that's not unique to me um, necessarily, but I, I think that's one thing I do with the editorial process or I try to do is like keep space for the possibility that this poem um, really is meant to be, I mean, it could be countless different things concurrently. If you actually, I'm looking, so part of why I was disassociated earlier when we came back from the break is I'm looking at this, uh, this, this absolutely ungodly labyrinthian document where all my poems are, and each poem mm-hmm. has like 17, 17 or 18 or 19 or 30 drafts, and they all look different. And um, I'm like, oh, dang, where is this? Where is this? Uh, so, again, it's a lost in it. But I'm very literally lost in it. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Thank you. Benjamin, please share a poem. Share a poem. Share a poem, my friend. Share a poem. All right. Let's do a uh, – Do a short one. Um, so a little prefatory note here. Um, in the book I'm working on, it's kind of the idea of fugues uh, or kind of the fugue is um, as, a, as a form is important to the collection, uh, not just because of the, I guess, um, polyvalence with um, – um, multiple voices, the, 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 uh, the psychological kind of connotations with the, with the fugue states and things like that. But also, um, again, with borderline, there can be oftentimes like these unintegrated, unintegrated pieces of the self. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways I'm trying to capture that is uh, by having these different kind of me personified, but also kind of distinct personas. Um, and one of them is uh, Boy Lucius, which is, um, I believe, uh, in Titus Andronicus, kind of the uh, grandchild of Titus, who is this uh, servant of the Roman Empire, um, who kind of does horrifying things in service of empire, not unlike any the history of any empire, and um, and is basically just betrayed by the empire that he gave his life to. Um, and and boy Lucius is kind of his oblivious or unwitting might be unfair terms but just his grandkid and um this is called uh, boy Lucius's insomnia log garden party along the columns and cross beams of our pergolas vines are wending like garden snakes burgers hiss on grills jet skis shed shred the man-made lake as horseflies mate on ice cubes melting in the amber blur of cognac. We mean so earnestly to overthrow this portrait of a cul-de-sac. 
Our principal models the proper form for shin kicking a maple. A classmate's mother, drifting toward him, strips her breeze-thin cardigan to reveal a second sleeve of playing cards and dragons. My grandfather steps onto the patio wearing only his longbow, sling, and socks. People notice. People talk. Our fireworks are hours late and flowering loudly. Whatever beast we all agree to call the sky, he knocks and sends an arrow through its eye. Thank you. Wow. Does it hurt you to write poetry, Benjamin? If not, why not? Hmm. Uh, that is one of the experiences I had. And quite honestly, yes, sometimes it does. Um, and when it does, so yeah, I guess we'll start with that part. Um, yeah, it does. And sometimes it's, it's hard to write the poem that you need to write. Sometimes what you're confronting um, hurts you back. Sometimes, um, sometimes the poem also, I'm one of the, I don't know. I, I know kind of this idea exists that the poet is distinct from their work and who they are as a human is not the same as who they are on the page. And I, I do understand that. I think for me, I will say though, that any progress I've made as a poet has made me a more fully embodied person. And, mm. and the same is true for setbacks. Like the further I step away from my own humanity, like the worse my poems get. Um, All right. Constant kind of thing. But uh, and likewise, think uh, kind of gains and growth and work I've done in my personal life, I think has has influenced my poetry for the better. So when I'm hurt by a poem, sometimes it's because it's a lack of fidelity to the poem. All um, right. There's a lack of fidelity in myself to myself. I want to throw through two, two more adjectives in there. Two more adjectives. Has a poem that you've written ever humbled or frightened you? Yes. Yes, both. <laughs> a resounding yes? Okay. Can I start with the fear? Um, yes. Uh, there's a poem that I wrote uh, many years ago, and I'm still – like it's published and it has a life, it has its own life, but I, I keep coming back to it and I keep working. It's called, um, it's called Doghead and it is I, I, the working title of the book and there are a bunch of poems with the title, which is one of the conventions, I guess, but you know, whatever. Um, and that poem scares me. Um, it scares me because I don't know what it says about me. You know, sometimes you understand that you are, you're naked in ways or transparent, I guess, in ways to people that, that you aren't aware of. Yes. Um, and there's kind of like, you know, I don't know if it's unfair to say a vulnerability in that. Um, mm -hmm. But there's like, what, what am I telegraphing and what do I, what am I not seeing? And, mm -hmm. and, but it's, it's more than that. I think it's, that is, uh, I think the poem focuses on some really kind of horrifying subject matter and okay. I can read some of it later, but, um, and, and I don't know that my relationship to that subject matter is entirely, um, where it should be quite frankly. Mm. I think there's, there's some of what's wrong with me is in this poem and I haven't found it all. Well, if you feel comfortable sense. sharing parts of it now, you can. Sure. Um, 
Yeah. So um, if it's okay, a little prefatory note on this one. Um, I... I remember when I was a teenager, um, was hanging out with some people and, you know, friends of friends and all of that. And one of these friends of friends, people I didn't know, acquaintances, et cetera, came in and he was telling a story in Southeastern Michigan is where I grew up, um, suburban Detroit. And, um, one thing that you'll see kind of throughout Michigan are there's these, um, abandoned um, psychiatric facilities that kind of litter litter the landscape um, and I mean not make it sound like they're everywhere but they don't there are there are at least three within driving distance um, and and he was exploring one of them as you know a lot of kids there did and he was talking about in one of the tunnels beneath um, one of these facilities, he found a, a crucified dog. And I never questioned it. I never, it looked based on the way that his face looked, that he was telling the truth. Like it was almost like he was in that tunnel. Um, he could have been lying for all I know. Uh, it didn't look like it, but the idea of that kind of haunted me then. And I, I didn't realize I'd kept it with me for like a decade plus until I, uh, until I wrote this poem. And I'm still not done with it. So uh, this is called Doghead. We want to see, not God, but dog. Crucified too, we'd heard. Beneath the tunnels, beneath the asylum tunnels. And one of them a cistern. A mound of concrete sledgehammered and pickaxed to dirt. We heard but didn't see. On the mound, a plywood cross, each plank three feet. We heard but didn't see. A smooth shank nail through each paw. On the hill and the tunnel, the fur stained the darkness golden. Long since retrieved, the dollar store tiara. Silver glitter still behind the ears. Jowls, lips, and teeth streaked with lipstick. We want to see. Psychiatric ruin. Pharmaceutical zoo. Heaven, a shard of its name once. We bring haven, a shard of its name once. We bring enough E to make it heaven. The plywood, uh, the plywood shutters were pried open prior to us. We are still trespassing. We are still breaking. We wedge ourselves through the window and step into the intake room. <clears throat> Pardon me. A drift and echo lends the darkness its dimensions. The flashlights lend us our memories. Counter, wall-mounted chair, water fountain fixtures, no fountain. Files scattered into a new floor, an account of something unseen that died nearby. Pulled by the buzzing of flies, some water, a flood, an alibi. Now this poem goes on for uh, three more pages, and uh, and I'm actually kind of writing a rejoinder to it, uh, even like eight years later. Um, but yeah, some kind of scary subject material that yes. hasn't quite left me. Well, I can appreciate you, I appreciate you sharing it with us. And I'm wondering, do you live your life like it's a poem? That's a way out there question. Hmm. No, that's, that's, I love that. Um, not a coherent poem. 
but yes. Okay. I think I do. Okay. I think I do. All right. Home that needs substantial revision, but yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I can say the same, my friend. Well, let me ask this question. Do you think? Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Were you meant to be a poet? Yes. I say tell me very more. few things with certainty. Uh, what's that? Say tell me more. In terms of why you feel you were meant to be a poet. I think um it's really uh the poet Kaveh Akbar talks about this and um the way that he described his kind of aha, I'm a poet moment really much really resonate you know, the way I've heard him describe it really resonates with me and kind of echoes or my, my mind echoes his a little bit, um, which is, you know, he said his uh, English teacher in high school, there's a story that he tells, um, and he describes it as kind of like trumpet, uh, trumpets in the sky, aha, you're a poet. Um, and I, I think I had a version of that with poetry and it was really the only thing I've ever felt called to do. Um, mm-hmm. I do teaching is I think wonderful and rewarding in its own right. Um, in so many ways, uh, it's challenging and frustrating. Um, I, I have things I'm, you know, very much struggle with, with it. Um, things I think I do well with it. Um, but it isn't a calling, if I'm being honest. Not the way poetry is. Um, All right. Poetry is the one thing right. I've been sure about this entire time. What surprises you most about being a poet? I think the capacity for all of the contradictions that exist within a person mm-hmm. or a space um, that they can be, that they can be explored and influenced and, and worked with and engaged with and shaped into something. Um, and I guess that's really at this, any art, I suppose, but poetry is the one that made sense. Um, what fascinates me is I think like, I will, I'll see Sorry, I lost the thread. I I think I got I got so astounded. Um, I think <laughs> I think trying to the fact that I can the fact that I can put two contradictory things together, or that I can go into a space that I've never actually been into, um, or um, or explore an idea, and that time can exist simultaneously, and that like all of these different parts of my life that still kind of even having worked through them in so many ways still revisit and still don't make sense. The fact that poetry is a place where they can make sense like poetry. Oh, here's the answer. I think we're getting there. Um, (laughs) It's a, it feels kind of like a physical space sometimes. You know, it really does feel like a physical place where things happen, like where these images kind of do create a sort of almost spatial texture sometimes. And and I know that's, you know, that's not physically happening, but my brain doesn't care. My brain doesn't make that distinction. And 
the fact that I can grow in these spaces or demolish things that I did not get a chance to demolish or deconstruct or confront or prostrate or pray or, you know, that's, um, I don't know. To me, that's, that's pretty wow. good. And it's very nice. Beautifully stated. You know, Benjamin, so much is happening in our world. There's the good, the bad, the ugly, and the indifferent. So much is happening. So much. Yeah. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? I think that is a question that I will answer by saying I think it really does it does vary from poet to poet. Um, I, I speak very reticently about things that all poets should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Um, okay. I think all poets, like all people, should do their absolute best to not cause intentional harm um, mm -hmm. and to be aware of the harm that they do cause when they do inevitably cause harm because uh, it is inescapable in so many ways. I believe. Um, but apart from that, I think what a poet's role is can be, you know, some poets want to witness, some poets want to, you know, um, want to sing and pray and like um, and celebrate. And some poets want to kind of um, deconstruct. And so I think for me, mm -hmm. I am, I think if, I'm going to go back to survival. I'm trying mm -hmm. to, I'm trying to create a map of that survival. And I'm trying to do it in a way that's authentic to me, but also could give a model for somebody else that might need it. Um, you know, one thing that I, I often found upsetting kind of growing up um, and frustrating and, and sometimes even just destructive was when people would give you these platitudes about how you were supposed to be, they would say you need to love yourself or you need to, I don't know, you need to believe in yourself or be yourself or so, these things that we just say, right. Which are on the surface, they're true. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they make sense, but like, where's the roadmap? Mm. How do we get there? Like how, what is, what is, what are the thousands and thousands and millions of micro labors that we need to engage in on a second to second basis to kind of shift the direction of a self toward, especially a self that does not know how to love itself mm -hmm. toward loving mm -hmm. itself or toward wholeness or toward integration. I think, I think that is something that I am trying to explore. Um, All right. It's not just the, not just the destination, but the map. All right. Very nice. You know, you're in the schools and I commend you for that. I commend you for that. Thank you. And I wonder sometimes in terms of poetry, how privileged is it? Is it accessible to the common man or woman? By non-binary, whoever, is it accessible? What do you think? How privileged is it? And I think that I'm glad you made that distinction because I think we're, I think we're getting to the point where I don't want to say we, but I, it is permeated the discourse more and more that privilege is, is so multifaceted and sure. there is, there are so many dimensions in which 
a person can experience marginalization or privilege and and mm-hmm. that they can coexist right multiple identities can coexist and and again that's not my idea it's not an original idea but um i think it depends on that intersection right the intersection that makes you i think it really does so for instance i think if you are let's say in school and i'm teaching a predominantly like eurocentric um what it can and that uh that focuses on quote unquote traditional um european forms then that is not necessarily not that it's not accessible but that i think that is that would be a manifestation of that privilege i think um mm-hmm. as far as kind of the idea of accessibility and there being a requisite level of literacy which is something that you know people say about poetry a lot um which yeah that I get that. I think the accessibility debate, this is where I've got a different vantage point, and that's oftentimes poems that are literal and accessible and linear, not that they, not that all of those things need to be true about a poem, but I often find them alienating. Um, I find them really inconsistent with the life I've lived. Um, and I will claim mm. in this sense, or I will claim neurodivergence um, because I believe that, you know, my experience has kind of reflected that. And a lot of poems that, you know, just kind of are pretty transparent are on the surface, what they are um, that kind of open themselves to easy interpretation. I think there's this belief that if you're doing something beyond that, you're alienating people. Um, and that an inaccessible poem is inaccessible to all. And I got to work through my I got to work through my ideas on that because I'm not sure they're totally coherent. But a lot of the poems people point to as um, kind of trying to to break through that um, I, I find I find inaccessible. Mm. I'm that wondering as you yeah it does make sense. I'm wondering as you think about your being a poet, where does your poetic doubt begin? Mm. And where does it end? Oh, man. How much can a poem do? So many good questions. Um, my poetic doubt, I think, begins with my self-doubt. And that begins the absolute kind of core of who I am. And I think kind of healing for me and wholeness for me and, and honesty for me is saying that out loud and not pretending that that's not the truth, right? I think being able to say, yeah, you don't believe in yourself the way that you're told to, and you don't believe in yourself as a poet the way that you feel like you need to, um, I think that's, I guess that's me trying to combat that, that self-doubt. But yeah, it be, going back to your question, I'm kind of rambling, but that it begins with, it begins with everything I doubt about myself, which is still to this day, most of everything um, and constantly. So kind of hinders revision in a lot of cases, but also I, I know that when something does come through that, uh, it's made it, right? It, it belongs, uh, it's gone through the gauntlet of that, and um, and 
I think as far as a poet's role, uh, wait, that wasn't the question you asked. Is that what, is, is that what you asked? No, I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm I'm throwing so much at you at one time. I apologize. I apologize. You're doing a fantastic job fielding all of Thank my you. questions. <laughs> you really are. Well, look, we've reached. <laughs> well, we've reached the time in the program that I view is for me the most my favorite time. It's what I call a mini M I N I poetry concert. So what I'd like you to do is to share three poems back-to-back, no interruptions from me, and we'll talk on the other side, all right? The stage is yours. Sounds good. Everyone, Benjamin Goldberg. All right. All right, poem one is Fugue with Chemical Restraints in Two Decades, and um, this covers April 1999 to July 2019. I'm in ninth grade and off somewhere still sulking, Bathroom, stairway, backstage, behind the fall of Rome or wind comes sweeping down the plain. I'm violet-haired and mirror-eyed. I'm skipping art like I skip much of being alive. In the tattered sketch pad, a slaughtered flower sheds its petals. A man I've yet to meet smells the clouds before he sees them. A moth at heart like many. He stumbled toward the bridge as if the skyline is his answer. We're playing laser tag. We sweep the labyrinth of fog machines and catwalks. We fire on foam board bunkers, storm each mirror at the center, light them red and green. I don't see the dead or living. Like many I live among, I see a scream. Minarets rippling in a river, another dawn, our cul-de-sac bursting into flags. Years of this, I quit my meds, I quit again. We fire from foam board bunkers. We are fires with batteries for backs curtains, ballot. I try to vote a letter from the alphabet. I try to vote the future off its axis. The future. I'm in a classroom being a teacher. In the classroom, there are children being children. The only surface here that stops a bullet is cinder block. I'm in an auditorium being told I need to know this. A drill. A door shakes wildly despite our silence. Flee or hide or flight. We're someplace doing something. From this window, a bookshelf marks the end of any fatal line of sight. Life or, di- life or not, difference then. The peeled spine of a copy of a lesson before dying. Another child is called a crime. A friend scrubs ashes from steel shelves in a pharmacy. This country speaks clearly. This country means to go on happening in every city, street, and spine. Each, fa- each lane fills with marchers. On the bus, the man beside me talks as if I am his mirror. Why do the shadows want to burn the streets, he asks. I am his mirror because I do not speak. Next drill, code red. The door is quiet despite our violence. Hours earlier, a curtain, a ballot hacked in half, now arrives so recklessly. I'm scrolling down the sounds I have yet to renounce. I wake, it's televised. The festival is being televised, lawns and stalls and so much sky. My cousin selling garlands made of garlic. The nation thinks, the nation prays. She survives. And uh, this next poem is called Song. And um, it recreates, I get recreates and recombines the language from Bridget uh, P. Dean Kelly's um, amazing poem, uh, Song. 
because we once and thought to. Because we were boys, we taught boys how to. Because we girl each other than rope. Because we bleat and stroke. Because the woods or school or moon and harder worked, we joked. Because we heard, we hurt. Because we bed the blood or because the bleeding hung. Because we trained to track and miles away and still the sweetness of the blackberries we hacked. Because we belonged to broken thorns. Because running hid the stars. Because bushes brushed us in the dark. Because we're strange in storm and now we come to harm. Because we pass, we stone and strip the branches. Because we, the empty yard. Because the heart head is alive and sings like eyes and wild fruit. Because we listen, because our bottles fill with flies. Because our mothers called us our little songs. Their little songs. Because our hands, because we have them. Because the loudness of the missing. Because only this is never missing. And then the last poem I'll read. To find it. It's called Devlog Entry One. And this is about game development, which is a new hobby. When you're this new, each blueprint takes at least an hour to script. 15-minute YouTube walkthrough of a single node that spindles like a synapse snarled with plaque. Countless pauses, two rewinds at minimum. It feels made up, the code, like you're a child or a trope of childness, no more than five years old and armored in your mother's bathrobe, head beneath a bucket, standing on a fire hydrant declaring, activate plasma force field with razor laser space teeth. But oh, you right-click on the event graph summon functions from an XY vertex. You drag the execution lines toward inputs, hit compile, and fire up the world, and now there is a force field hovering in game space, complete with teeth. You script the macros to unfold a maze the player crawls through, spawn portals growing cobalt behind the hedgerows surrounded with AI. You would make an awful god, that's all you know. The hundreds of redundant nodes you cache inside a single socket will animate a player's bones. The same abstractions panel every object, actor, every scene or sky, atmospheric light, sphere and breeze. Damage and resistance perimeter the HUD. The player spawns, the player sees. Thank you. Wow. You know, your work is the kind of poetry that you need to allow to just kind of settle in and ruminate over it. We do yeah, have a caller, um, Benjamin. We have a oh, caller, okay. my friend. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to bring this person on. The area code is 630. The first three numbers are 467. You're on the air with Benjamin. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Benjamin. Hello, sir. How are you? Michael Lee Johnson here. Yes, how are you, Michael Lee Johnson? All right. I'm all right. I have a question Uh, for Benjamin. I had actually a couple of questions. Uh, Benjamin, I'm sort of impressed. You know, I live in Itasca, Illinois, which is only about 18 miles out of Chicago, where Poetry Magazine is located. Mm -hmm. I noticed that uh, you've been published there one, two, three times. (laughs) Oh, 
Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm in there. I think I'm in there uh, once. I think in it was a while ago, but yeah. I mean, it's one that you know. It's not. Uh, how do I say this? You know, I don't know that much about uh, the most popular or the most prestigious poetry publications in the world, but poetry does mm-hmm. rank in the top five. And actually, outside of one in England that I can think of that I can't remember right now, a poetry reader or something, I don't know. Poetry has uh, traditionally uh, been classified as one of the most prestigious publications mm-hmm. to be published in. So I'm sort of impressed with that, and I just want you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. That's very sweet. Very nice. No, wow. I got another question for you, though. Um, I've been, uh, I've been, you know, I, I listened to you with the poem. I believe it was called Doghead. Mm-hmm. Um, the version that you read is one different than what I was reading on poetry. The one I'm reading okay. on poetry appears to be more like a poetic prose program, uh, poem. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? It does. Yes. You know, uh, you know, it, uh, I, I found it quite interesting. Normally, I don't like longer poetic uh, pro poems, but this one is pretty intriguing. You know, about a bulldog out in the playgrounds, etc. And and it went on. You know, I finished mazes with a green Koran, etc. Loved the last uh, line. On the right side of his face, I drew a sunny day. I signed my name. All right, but it was, you know, I created many different versions of the same poem because over time they changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering what happened here. Was this Is this the same poem, a different poem, or something that perhaps evolved? Well, first of all, it's really surreal and sweet you reading the poem um uh to me like that so thank you for that um i actually i forgot about that one for a while it's um it's it's both if i'm being honest it's both it's a literally it is a different poem um and it does share the same title and i think kind of in the sense of earlier when we were talking about um kind of so many of us, we, we, and you said this too, right, Michael, we, we write the same poem over and over, right? Right. Um, well, you know, some, sometimes I just, I don't know if you're the same way, but I mean, I've had poems that have evolved over time, and sometimes I can't even recognize the different versions because they've changed so much, <laughs> and I was just wondering if this might be one of those, or if they're totally different. In this case, they are different poems, but... Okay. Um, but the other poem that shares its name with Doghead, I, in a sense, they're all, they are all one. I mean, it sounds corny, but they are all part of the same poem. They're part of the same constellation of ideas. And I think they're just different ways that those ideas have come out and those images have come out. Um, I, think, I think you're right about that. You know, because when I was reading it, and I did read the whole thing, uh, you know, of course, I can't pronounce the D-A-E-D-A-L-U-S, but I do recognize it as a uh, mythology. Okay. You know, but anyway, it's it's just an interesting uh, poem. Like I said, I don't really normally like reading prose poems, but I got started reading this, and I sort of got into it, you know, reading the images and seeing behind the images, and listening to the shorter version that you gave, and I said, you know what, in some crazy way, they seem totally unrelated, but yet maybe sort of related. Mm-hmm. All right, very nice. 
All right. Yeah. No, it, Thank serious. you, Michael. <laughs> I got one other question. I'll let you go real quick. Yes. Um, you know, in the beginning when I was writing poems, oftentimes I wrote poems seeking my own way out of my own mental hell. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm serious about that. And I, you know, Mike, Michael Ingram and I, have we've spoken together about this. And it's nothing that unusual with poets because sometimes I think, you know, poets are geniuses, but they get classified as mentally ill. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, I just wanted to ask this question. Do you think there's a point in time when a poet progresses from writing about his own scenario, his own mental state, where it is almost depressing and maybe over time evolves into joy? Wow. Um, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I, I think I, I believe in the possibility of that. Um, I'm part of I'm part of a, a support group that one of the one of the tenets that we kind of emphasize in that support group is um, kind of realistic expectations uh, for for recovery and for wellness. And I think kind of I don't want to take forever to answer this. I don't want to ramble, but there's a lot to say. I think. Um, on the one hand, I, I believe in that ideal of a kind of life that is, that is, you know, joyous, um, or I, I have to. Um, and yet I don't, I know that it's not going to, it would not take the form that I envision kind of even having that thought. I think, I think, and I still think that the path that led me to that, that state that leads me to that that place of joy if I get there if a poet gets there more broadly I think that still diffuses itself into the poems that they write um, so I think I think getting to a place where I think wellness I'm just going to end at wellness place of wellness mm-hmm. that might be yeah you know me. i i think uh, i guess maybe i should have phrased it a little bit more concisely i i guess if i were to say it more, more concisely i would say something to the effect do we ever as poets uh, go from the point where our writing is therapy to where mm-hmm. our writing ultimately takes us to a place of more subtle stable joy that oh, would very be nice a good concise way of putting it. excellent wow. question that's an yeah, excellent question, question. All right. Well, you know, Benjamin, you need to know. Well, let's say this. You need to know, Benjamin, that Michael Lee Johnson's not just another typical caller. He's a superstar in the field of poetry. His name is extremely well-known. So I want you to look him up. He's a good man to know. A good we'll man do to that know. right now. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to find you, by the way. I was taking a look uh, while I was listening tonight to to you, and uh, I was looking on. Uh, I, I've had some problems on Facebook because they don't like me anymore. But the bottom line is, I was also looking you up on what's the other site that you know the ones that the younger people use quite often. Just Twitter, just Instagram. You know, there you go, Instagram. Mm-hmm. I didn't find mm-hmm. you there, Benjamin. Were you on there? I not really no. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I never was either because I never wanted to be there. You know, until I got booted out of Facebook. 
you know, but but uh, you know, but you know, I've learned actually surprisingly, it's to a younger audience, which I didn't really yeah. want to know that much about. But the reality is, is that actually it's sort of interesting because it opens up a whole new avenue to different people than what we're accustomed to. But I noticed, yeah. I don't know how, how old are you, Benjamin? I'm I'm 38. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm a lot younger than you. I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, but, but uh, I remember you saying something about your favorite poets were, you know, some of those younger ones. But I don't know. I'm surprised you're not on Instagram and not that it matters that much. Yeah. Anyway, listening well, was a joy that. talking to you. I'm just very happy to run across you. My, Michael, Michael will get me hell later, okay? Michael, I will talk to you later. Thank you so much for calling yeah, in. No problem. I enjoyed Thank listening you. to you. Benjamin, beautiful, beautiful. I wish you the Fantastic. best, and I, I really do enjoy your poetry. Thank you, Michael. That's, and I, really I, just, uh, I really, really uh, hope that you're going to be out there banging with the top of the line, all right? I oh, think you're probably you. a nice thing to say. Way. Oh, right. that's beautiful. Oh, that's so nice. Right. Wow. Good night now. All right. Thank you. All Thank right, you Michael. so much. Thank you. Wow. Bye-bye. See, Benjamin, there are great things in store for you, man. There are great things in store. Oh. Oh, great things in store because, to me, if you just continue to continue to be yourself, continue to speak your message, ah, Wow. Well, we've almost come to the end of our journey, Benjamin. (laughs) But I would like to ask you one more question, if that's okay. Sure. And then I'd like you to end with a poem to take us home on a high note. All right. Here we go. Writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to their audience. Others write because to stay silent is not an option. Why do you write? Um, man, uh, why do I write? Um, I think I think I'm going to go with silence isn't an option. Um, silence isn't an option. I, if if I don't put it on paper it's still getting said. It's just getting said inside me and it's getting said over and over and over. I was actually just having this conversation with them. You know, it was a, it was an acquaintance, but I think we connected over and she posed a question on, uh, on Facebook (laughs) and um, she asked, what do you do to take care of yourself? And, you know, a lot of the self care talk, I kind of, kind of, tune out, but um, she wasn't doing that. She was legitimately interested in how people kind of stay well um, or move toward wellness. And I said, um, what did I say to her? I said something like, if I stop fighting, if I stop fighting the unwellness when I feel it, um, it passes faster. And usually it's there because it tries to tell me something. Um, It's trying to speak. It's trying to communicate. And I spent many, many years not listening to that. And mm-hmm. I think poetry is a way of listening to that and yeah. letting, letting it and then kind of let, let myself speak with it, I guess. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. It does make sense. But please share one more piece. 
And we're close. All right. Let me see if I can find this. There was one actually I was really excited about, and it's somewhere. Here it is. Okay. This is um kind of after Kim Adonisio, um, I, her poem, uh, The Woman Crying Uncontrollably in the Next Stall. I love that poem and uh, mm-hmm. wanted to um, kind of respond to that in a way. And this one's called To the Boy Breaking His Fist Against a Wall. If Room's description ever made you witness the elided crimes within, if you were ever forced to see once more because you saw just once, to hold a loved one you found shivering and hidden, found and held yourself like yourself like this, tender ever after even to the most welcome touch, if you stalked the socials, mapped each habit, and tracked the architect of sadness to where he smirked back at you through sheetrock, fiberglass, brick, petals, plaster, canvas, window, cinder block, or skin. If some abuser lives across the ocean, country, city, hallway, screen, or sky. If you tried as told forgiveness, but no, because fuck that. If all of this, if none, but still this wall, please listen now, your hand is speaking. Each bone is softness, each brick. Please listen, there is so much softness. Thank you. Wow. Benjamin, where can listeners find your work, my friend? Uh, presently, um, uh, the poetry one. Um, and then it's uh, actually a new poem is coming out in this year's edition of uh, Best New Poets. So Best New Poets 2022. I got a new poem coming oh, wow. out. And the rest, I got some stuff scattered around online. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to rebuild a website. That's, uh, stay tuned for that, I guess. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right. How can listeners stay in touch? Uh, uh, if you want to contact me, uh, email me at benrossgoldberg at gmail.com. If you have questions or uh, kind of want to talk, let me know. I'll be there. Wow. Very nice. What's next for you? Where do you go from here? Um, short term, back to school. Long term, right. <laughs> uh, I would like to get. I'd like to get this. I'd like to get this book finished. Um, I am on more rewrites than I can even count, and at this point, I have to just admit to myself that I'm uh, that I'm stalling. And all right, find all out right, why. all right. I understand. <laughs> well, I'd like to yeah. thank you, Benjamin, <laughs> for being with me tonight. I've really enjoyed our time together. I really have. I really have. Your your work touches me. Just the fact that you're so open and so willing to talk about your experiences, your lived experiences, that that just that really touches me. Really touches me. And I'd like you to come back. I've got a couple of ideas and I'd like you to come back. I love ideas and I'd love to come back. And uh Doctor Ingram, thanks for having me and thank you for asking such wonderful questions and um 
And yeah, thanks for talking to me. All right. All right. All right, good people. We've made it through another one. A very, very, a wonderful, wonderful program. And as I share with you, every time we get together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Good night, Benjamin. Good night. Take care. Good night, Dr. Good. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.